Welcome, everyone, to episode 74, Culture Conditions. I'm Dr. Kiki, and I'm here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm okay, I guess. I'm, a, I'm depressed a little bit because my uh, I feel like I, the summer ends. It's a culmination of a million things. It's the, the school year starts, my kid's birthday, my oldest kid's birthday was just last week. So, like, you're ramming around trying to get all this stuff done. And, like, it's, it's such an onerous stress at the time, and you hate it. And now that it's done, I have a void and, like, nothing to live for. So I don't, I'm, I'm lost. I'm unmoored, Kiki. I'm sure you're going to find your direction again. Uh, I it'll, don't know. It'll come, right? Uh, I'm hoping this show is going to, you know, put me into focus. We have a lot to focus on. Story, story, stories, interview, so much. So let's go down to business. Everyone out there, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, just like our newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter, and we will email you when a new show is released, and that email will contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. It's going to make your life a whole lot easier. You don't have to go clicking around, looking for a website. It just comes to you. You can also sign up for our stem cell forum. We've created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free. Join the conversation. And of course, follow us on all the social medias, Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We have a great show today. Our guest for episode 75 is Dr. Joshua Brickman. He's a professor and group leader from the Danish STEM Center at the University of Copenhagen. And we will talk to him about his work and latest paper regarding stem cell culture conditions. But first, it's time for the roundup. You ready? What do you say, Dalen? Let's round it up. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I'm ready to hear some science stories, general science, interesting science, exciting science. Bring it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we've talked a bit about antibiotics. Last show, we talked a little bit about antibacterials in soap and how they're being wonderfully banned by the FDA. This is so great. But um, antibiotics, we've talked about how they lead to resistance, right? It's a force for evolution in bacterial species, right? Yeah, it's a force. Yeah. It's a force. Well, some researchers, microbiologists, published a report in the September 9th Science magazine. And there's a video that goes along with this that is so striking. They basically created a bacterial culture with different levels of antibiotics. And they show how dramatically different levels of antibiotic compounds can turn bacteria in a very short period of time into super resistant strains. Wow. So wait, high antibiotics is not good now? 
Antibiotics is just generally not good, which is why we need to be watching how we use our antibiotics in, you know, in agriculture, in medicine, in so many different ways. And so microbiologist Michael Bayham and his colleagues, he says, scientists often study evolution of microbes in flasks, mix everything together. And he says, inside that flask, in order for a new strain to evolve, the new mutant has to be more fit than everything around it. But in nature, we see a second dynamic. You don't necessarily need to be more fit than everything around you. You just need to make it into a new environment. And so that's what they show. It was like a one big dish that was more than a meter long. And they started the bacteria at the edge of this meter long dish. And it allowed them to diversify, starting with low concentrations of trimethoprim or ciprofloxacin at the edges, and they very low levels at the edges, ramped up to higher levels of these antibiotics in the middle of the dish. And they put E. coli bacteria at each end of the plate, and then they watched them multiply over a time period of only a week and a half. And the E. coli mutated so that they could handle the higher and higher levels of antibiotics. So starting with the low levels, one of the descendants was able to survive and made it past those levels of antibiotics into the next area of the plate. And from there, their descendants made it through the higher levels of antibiotics. And you see, it's like a tree-like growth and they descend and they evolve and they are super resistant E. coli when they make it to the center of these very high antibiotic areas of the plate. And so this group think that this setup could be used to study microbial evolution under other environmental and spatial constraints, like the availability of particular nutrients. But this was just, a, like I said, just such a striking example of how antibiotics force the hand of bacteria into being more resistant. That's really amazing. I, I have to admit, though, ever since you started talking about the meter wide plate i've been thinking of you know the guinness world records like the right. biggest pancake that's all i'm picturing is people making a huge pancake and then you said the e coli thing and, and then now you're I like oh, i don't sick. want to, i don't want to eat any more pancakes <laughs> but that is pretty amazing wow super resistant e coli stay away yeah uh moving on from e coli to borrelia burgdorferi this is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. It's a corkscrew-shaped bacterium, and it's usually transferred through tick bites, and it spreads through the whole body. And the Lyme disease, is it causes joint pain, neurological problems, and biologists know that Burgdorferi can move through the bloodstream to the different areas of the body. And some researchers have published a study suggesting how exactly this bacterium might do this movement. Because if a bacterium is in the bloodstream, you know, you've got the flow of the blood and it's just going to get pushed through, right? It'll just tumble and flow through the vessels until it's flushed from the body. So how does the bacterium stick around? And how does it get to places where it causes the problems that are associated with the infection? So they lined flow chambers with human endothelial cells to mimic the blood vessel environment. And they looked at what happened. So they visualized with high-powered microscopes exactly what happened in these chambers. And they have found that the bacteria, as they're tumbling through, form catch bonds 
And these are specialized links, and they're actually used by white blood cells that are moving through this very similar way as white blood cells move across endothelial cells. And these catch bonds actually get stronger when they're under mechanical stress. So it's kind of like, what is it? Have you ever made um, oobleck? What? You know, oobleck, <laughs> where if it's just under normal forces, it's just a ooey gooey substance or even like ketchup. It's like nor it flows uh, normally and then you hit it really hard and the mechanical stress makes the whole thing solid for a second. This is kind of like what the catch bonds are doing when they're able to form the bonds when they touch the endothelial cells. And then when the flow of the blood is pushing them along, it makes the bond stronger. So they actually stick better. And so these structures work alongside other structures called tethers to even out the load and to allow these bacteria to maybe shift from bond to bond. They break one bond, transfer to a new bond, and they move along the endothelial cells, remaining continually attached and never flowing, getting flushed out. And uh, That's amazing. I thought they were so dumb bacteria, <laughs> but they're not. Not so dumb. No, they got some smart solutions. And this is based on a protein called BBK32, mm. which actually allows them to form the catch bonds. So I don't, maybe this is a target that we can work on. Prevent bacterial sepsis. There we go. Yeah. Shut it down. The Bergdorf bug. That's right. Shut it down. Oh, my gosh. And now moving on from problems of bacterial infection to babies. Uh, same thing. <laughs> uh, so your kids, did you have any problems with colic or, you know, baby heartburn, reflux? Uh, nah, no, I thought we were pretty, we were pretty uh, lucky that way. We didn't have very many issues. Did you burp your babies? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I didn't want to elaborate, but we just kind of did what was necessary in the moment on demand. We had no strategy at all. We were just surviving. <laughs> That's a, Hanging on by our fingernails. Survival. Yeah. Uh, well, a researcher, Bhavneet Bardi, published in Child Care, Health and Development, and this was actually published in 2015, some results suggesting that maybe we don't have to burp babies. And so... American Academy of Pediatrics always advises parents to burp their babies. There are all sorts of websites for parents to burp their babies. And uh, basically, Barty's study is, suggests that we don't have to. Hmm. Yeah, she actually had a bunch of parents keep track of their babies, had some of them burp the babies and some of them not burp the babies. And they found that burped babies actually spit up more Burped babies don't cry less than ones that aren't burped. And uh, yeah, in terms of the spit up, burped babies spit up about eight times a week compared with 3.7 times for unburped babies. So maybe by burping your babies, you're jostling them so that they just blah. Yeah. I'm saying <laughs> on its face, the stats just make sense. When you hit your baby, they cry more. When you hit them on the back, they throw up more. That's that's what I would say, but I guess it's it's counterintuitive somehow. Yeah, I don't know. When I had my son, I didn't really try and burp him all the time, and yeah, it, me neither. it worked. Me neither. So maybe you don't have to. We're geniuses, Kiki. We are. That's we are right. so ahead of our time. <laughs> Surviving. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Whatever is needed. And finally, my final story is about some smart pigeons. Hmm. 
Yeah. Hard to believe. Yeah, I know. Pigeons, the rats with wings in cities throughout the world. Turns out that some of them might be able to read. What? What? Yeah. So this one's a, a interesting study. And I'm going to start right now with the caveat that they only had four birds really involved in this study, but they did narrow down to these four super bright birds out of 18. They trained these four really intelligent pigeons to distinguish four-letter words from non-words. This study is published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. Which four-letter words exactly? (laughs) That's a very good question. So they, these birds were just, if you can imagine, jumbled up letters that are non-words, right? Just a sequence of letters versus actual words. The birds were also able to tell the difference between words with letter transpositions. So correct spelling, very versus vray. You know, if you transpose the, the R and the E. Mm, I see. They were able to tell the difference between these words. They were also able to tell the difference from words with different letters included in them. So they're completely misspelled. And so the pigeons, the the authors say, had performance more comparable to that of literate humans than baboons. (laughs) The pigeons were able to discriminate between 26 to 58 words. This is depending on the individual. And the area of the brain that was activated in this reading that the pigeons were doing is an area of the the brain called the VWFA. And it is active across the board. And the authors think that a possibility is that the VWFA is the product of neuronal recycling. So this area of the brain was kind of there before for some other function, but now and with its neurons learning to code visual stimuli, but now we are using it to encode the visual stimuli of words. And so maybe once it was activated, stimulated by visual objects, but these visual objects are now symbolic in nature. But it's really interesting that there's a conservation of function between humans with this area and also pigeons. Hmm. I don't know, but pigeons are going to take over the world, right? I don't know. It does explain one thing, which is why my car is always the one covered with the bird crap, because clearly I did something to piss these guys off, and they're (laughs) monitoring my license plate. That's right. Either that or you left a newspaper on the front seat, and they're just hanging out on the the front window trying to read the newspaper. I wouldn't put it past them. They're very crafty. They're pigeons these days. Fascinating. All right, that's it for me. What do you have today? Well, I don't have anything so stirring as reading pigeons, but <laughs> I do have some good news. It's very stem cell focused. Uh, awesome. First story, you remember it was last summer, you know, with iPS cells, Japan became a, a world leader in trying to get stem cells in the clinic. And last year there was this particular group leader, Masayo Takahashi, and it was in the news because a, a trial that she had initiated for iPS cells for treatment of macular degeneration in Japan was halted. After they had treated one patient with their own iPS cells, a second patient, they found that the iPS cells had a minor alteration in the genetic sequence that could have been like oncogenic, you know. So they suspended the trial. And this was really big news in Japan because it was seen as a huge setback. in the world over, actually, it was seen as a big setback for the field. And the good news is, is that this summer the trials were resumed just recently in June. And the shift that was made here is 
they went into more allogeneic focus. So instead of getting a patient's own cells, they were getting cells that were a close match. Okay, so that's the backdrop for this story. And this paper is kind of the setup for those studies. So a little more background, you know, the eye is considered as this great early entry point for cell-based therapy, Kiki. You know why? Why? Because it's, it's immune privileged. Because the idea, at least, is you can put cells in there and they're not going to be bombed out by the immune surveillance, right? But there's some open question in the field as to how immune privileged is the eye. Uh, and these studies here done by Masayo Takahashi in this preliminary study published in Stem Cell Reports was meant to address that question. So what they showed is getting iPS cells, and if you mix them, this is all in vitro, but if you mix iPS cells with T cells that were from an allogeneic source, so not a perfect genetic match and not really lined up perfectly in terms of the haplotype, quote-unquote, then the T cells would react with them and they'd attack them and there'd be this inflammatory response. But if you took T cells that weren't an exact match, you know, not a genetic match to the patient, but were a homozygote HLA match, so that they were closely related, similar to the way that you do blood cell transfusions now, you look for a donor that's a close match. If you did that, then the cells wouldn't be attacked. The reason why this is a big deal is because now with the shift of these early trials in Japan being moved from an autograft focus, taking a patient's own cells and turning them into iPS cells, making them to this retinal pigmented epithelium to treat macular degeneration in these patients, which may be a risk because every time you got to make new iPS cells and there may be some oncogenic transformation in there, instead of doing that, this paper kind of paves the way for making a massive bank of many different quality-controlled and proven iPS cells that fall across an array, a spectrum of these HLA types, and then get an off-the-shelf retinal pigmented epithelium from all these different HLA types, matching it to the patient in need and transplanting it. So it's kind of an end run around the immune rejection slash oncogenic transformation potential of a true or of the existing therapies. It's a way we can kind of meld the two cell products into a practical and pragmatic approach. I think it's fascinating. And I, I just wonder if it can be expanded to other stem cell therapies later, if the HLA aspect is something that is conserved and that, you know, if that's the thing that triggers that the immune response. Yeah, for sure. I think this is a lot of people are looking at this because it may suit any therapy because one of the issues generally is this with the FDA. I mean, we talked about this maybe a bit with Adonis, but with the FDA, as it is, iPS cells, every single patient has to be approved as an investigational new drug because you're making a new product from those patient cells. So the idea of having a readily available off-the-shelf mm -hmm. product that's been put through all the rigor and shown to be safe, that's the paradigm that we exist in now. So I think it's a nice bridge to the future. Yeah. So on to our next story. I love these titles. Scientists use stem cells to grow 3D lung in a dish. That's better than a 2D lung in a dish, because I don't think a 2D lung's going to work. The 2D lung, it's, <laughs> it's very smelt. It's very, got a very slim profile, but it's just not going to work for it. That's right. Uh, so here we go. You know, scientists, this is lung disease across the, the board, pulmonary disease of all sorts, and as a complication to many other diseases, it's a major issue. Now scientists have successfully grown three-dimensional lungs in a lab using stem cells, and these uh, 
3D lungs can be used to study diseases that are difficult to understand and really don't present and manifest in a 2D cell culture kind of situation. So the way they did this is by coating these tiny gel beads with lung-derived stem cells and then allowing them to to self-assemble into the shapes of air sacs that are found in in human lungs. The alveoli? The alveoli. You got it. You Mm. like the lung. You can breathe. I can tell. I like... (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) And these are 3D lungs, apparently. Although I think, to be fair, we should call them organoids. And I think, you know, the headline-grabbing thing is a 3D lung. But the reality is these are the components of lungs deconstructed and then reconstructed in a three-dimensional type way. But they're really just balls of lung-type tissue, not really lungs in a dish. But... Even so, they haven't built a fully functional lung, but they've put them in the correct geometrical spacing. And they've shown, comparing them to like actual lung, that they look pretty close. Granted, this is a spatial architectural kind of organization looking like a lung, and space doesn't necessarily mean function, functioning like a lung. But to show that the tiny organoids actually mimic the structure of actual lungs, they, they compared them to lab-grown tissues, and they added molecular factors to the 3D cultures and showed that the lungs... De- are the 3D lungs? Yeah. Organoids develop scars that are similar to those in people who've developed idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this is something that you wouldn't really see in 2D cultures. I don't know. I think it's neat. I mean, being able to put it in a dish means that you can apply all sorts of environmental factors, possibly. So, I mean, I've seen studies historically where, you know, we've had to sacrifice animals to be able to determine that different shapes of um, nanoparticles, you know, Mm. if it's a bar-like nanoparticle, it leads to this fibrosis effect in the lungs. If it's a ball-type nanoparticle, it's in the air, it doesn't. So, you know, there are going to be lots of applications for being able to figure out, you know, what's in the air around us, what can affect the lungs, what can lead to these disruptions of structure and function. I think that's absolutely right, Kiki. I agree with you 100%. I think this is a case of great science being hijacked by aggressive headlining. Yeah. I'm going to give you another great example of that with our next story. (laughs) Listen to this one. Motherless babies possible as scientists create live offspring without need for female egg. Uh, It's the world of the... Babies in, I don't know, <laughs> laboratories growing in tanks and uh, it's like the Matrix. It's, it is the Matrix, a yeah. Matrix without women. Well, maybe not without women, but without mothers. I should say as a disclaimer, the scientists who did the research didn't come up with these titles. No. I'm just fishing them off the Internet because I love to encapsulate good science in something that seems totally ridiculous. So... Because let's be honest, motherless, you'll see as I get to it, but they're motherless only in as much, I would say eggless maybe, but not motherless because you still need a mother to carry the baby. We're not talking about wombless. We're not talking about babies being raised by men because let's be honest, what a terrible society. (laughs) But I'll give it to you anyway. Motherless babies could be on the horizon after science have discovered a method of creating offspring without the need for female egg. All right, this is University of Bath researchers who have, you know, maybe rewriting hundreds of years of biology teaching that say that you need a sperm and an egg. So what they did essentially is they've shown that you can, there's this idea of parthenogenesis. You yeah. can take an egg that's unfertilized, you can, you know, give it a little spark, Frankenstein-esque, and it'll self-fertilize, so to speak, and go through the early paces of development. 
what the research essentially shows, you can do the same thing, just you can trick any cell, really, not even an egg. You can trick any cell to taking on genetic material and starting the paces of development as long as that program is intrinsically there in the nuclei of those you know, so-called embryo-initiating cells there. But it could be from two sperm is the idea, or any kind of somatic cell for that matter. You don't even need gametes. The technical aspects are a bit dry. I'm not going to belabor them, but I love the impact, all right? So there's three main things that I see. You could use this for, let's say, gay men, for instance, who, who want to have a, a child with equally shared DNA from each parent in the couple, although you'd still need a, a surrogate to carry that baby. Mm-hmm. Then there's probably the more practical possibility of women who suffer from infertility of some type, who don't have any eggs of their own. They may be able to get a conceptus implanted in their own uterus and have a child that shares their own DNA. Or, my favorite, we could make a baby from just one person. You take a man in this case, because who needs eggs? And he could fertilize his own cells to produce offspring containing a mixture of his own genes from his own initial parental pair, but essentially just him. So I love it. I want to have a clone, right? That's me mixed with me. (laughs) Not even a clone. A clone is weird, but I'll take a a, a me mixed with me, baby. You know, me mixed with me. Oh my God. Because that's gotta be, that's gotta be something I'm going to like. Would you take a clone Nah, not a clone. Would you take a Kiki slash Kiki baby? <laughs> or would that be just too much Kiki? That's just, I mean, I think I'm a lot already, so that might just be too much Kiki in the world. Well, I disagree. <laughs> I'd take that baby. Give it to me if you don't want it. With this study, I mean, we've already got, you know, reprogramming of skin cells, you know, various types of cells to be able to become pluripotent stem cells that can form any tissue type, you know. And I mean, do we need the sperm here or is it, is it, I mean, what are we really doing differently in this study that... It's the headline, really. Yeah. No egg is really the key. We don't need the egg, I guess. It's really the anti-dogma. Yeah. I thought we were already moving on that direction anyway, but okay. They've really done that. They've really done it. All right. You already knew you were redundant. Brush off the women? skin cells, you know, get a little, That's it'll true. take, yeah, take a look, take my hair follicle. There you go. Yes, this is another path to the same destination. Yeah. And speaking of familiar territory, we talk about disease modeling a lot. I like this. It's a short little study, uh, disease modeling by Lorenz Studer and Jaywon Shim uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering published in Stem Cell Reports. So this is a disease modeling study for Parkinson's. Parkinson's characterized by selective loss of dopamine neurons in the substantia nigra. However, the way that this works is relatively unclear. But there's a subset of Parkinson's disease that's linked to these specific mutations in, it's a familial version, it's specifically linked to mutations in these two genes, PARC2 PARC and PINK1, which lead to dysfunctional mitochondria-related proteins, Parkin and PINK2. So it suggests that the pathways, these mitochondrial pathways are implicated in the monogenic form here. The familial version suggests that they're maybe more generally involved as well. So hmm. what Lorenz and Jaywan did is they looked at a lot of different IPS cell lines derived from patients with Parkinson's disease. And what they showed, which was kind of a new twist, is that when you're looking at the disease phenotype in these IPS-based models, it really depends on what protocol you use to differentiate those midbrain dopaminergic neurons. And the bottom line is that the floor plate protocol, it recapitulates the phenotypes, uh, including 
this pathogenic protein accumulation, cell type specific vulnerability, mitochondrial dysfunction, and abnormal neurotransmitter homeostasis. But the neural rosette-based strategy for differentiation, it doesn't recapitulate those phenotypes, Keith. Apart from glorifying the Studer method, floor plate strategy, which was developed in the Studer lab, I should say, apart from glorifying that, um, it also suggests that there's, you know, there's a lot of other hard science in this article. It's worth reading. It, it suggests this pathogenic loop that once initiated, it loops in a feedback kind of mechanism to foster the disease in these patients. So it's a nice you know, disease-specific uh, modeling-type study with iPS cells, but it goes a little bit deeper to show that even with the cells in hand that are genetic masks to the patient, you really need to drill down and make sure that your protocols for generating the cells of interest are uh, appropriate as well. Yeah, and I think additionally, is that it's not just the protocols, but it also might implicate particular environmental situations that lead to the triggering of the genetic factors. That's right. It's a lot about the environmental context. And I think that's what's behind the different protocol methods, you know, that the different protocols for generating these cells creates different niche support and a different environmental milieu. And I think those things, as you say, directly relate to the presentation and manifestations of phenotype. That's an interesting study. Cool. That's my end. That's how I end, Keeks. That's the end of my uh, stem cell stories. I think we got to get on with this show into the interview portion. I'm really psyched about this one. Yeah, this is going to be a great interview. This was a fantastic roundup. So moving on. Remember, everyone, that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for the newsletter. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. This portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies has a new product, Reset Medium. Reset reverts primed human pluripotent stem cells and maintains cells in a naive-like state. Reset your HPSCs with Reset. Teaser spelled backwards because reverting back to naive-like Pluripotency is what you want to do. Formulations are based on the 2013 Nature publication from the Jacob Hanna Lab. But this is an improved version, and it does not contain BFGF or TGF beta. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get a free sample. So that's awesome. You can get a free sample and test things out. If you go to stemcell.com slash go naive. That's stemcell.com slash go naive for a free sample of this reset medium. Yeah, should be pretty easy to use. Test it out. Test it out. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Joshua Brickman. He did his PhD in transcription at Harvard University and his postdoctoral training in developmental biology. In 2001, He began his own lab at the Institute for Stem Cell Research in Edinburgh, and his research projects have spanned embryonic stem cells and early development in multiple models systems in a hybrid approach aimed at understanding conserved mechanisms of pluripotency and self-renewal. In 2012, his group moved to the Dan Stem in Copenhagen. It's a center focused on the basic science underpinning stem cell approaches to diabetes and cancer. And he's the professor of stem cell and developmental biology at Danish Stem Cell Center, Dan Stem. 
and Vice Center Leader of STEM Phys, both at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Dr. Brickman, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So let's get started. Can you introduce to the audience a little bit about the focus of your lab and how you came to work in that area? Okay, so I think I start historically. I have always been interested in how transcriptional changes occur. You know, initially as a PhD student, I was very interested in transcriptional mechanism. And but as I developed as a scientist, I started to think I I became very interested in how they could explain pattern and potency, how they could explain biological changes. And so my lab is really focused on the transcriptional underpinnings of linear specification, and we're interested in that on several levels. We're interested in how transcriptional variation occurs in a uniform population of cells, and to explore that, we either explore a very early embryo or we explore embryonic stem cells. We're interested in how those variations become propagated during cell fate choice, and so how does a cell commit to a particular transcriptional program? And very recently, we've been interested in the question of how apparently contradictory transcriptional programs can act in a cell to sort of preserve its potency at the cusp of two lineage choices. So how does the gene regulatory network in a cell explain the potency of a cell to differentiate? And obviously this underlies concepts such as pluripotency. We've done some work on what we call totipotency. And also you can imagine also could explain you know, general progenitor cell potency later in development and differentiation in the adult. So it's funny. I always tell my students when I'm introducing them to the idea of embryonic stem cells, which is my focus, is that it's something that really doesn't exist, so to speak, in, in physiology. It's this transient window at a very defined point during mammalian development. We have these cells with this potency that is, you know, that doesn't really exist at other times during development, or it may be in discrete windows, but it's not something that exists the way we see it in culture. These stem cells, which we just keep self-renewing in this artificial state. So how do you reconcile this idea of this in vitro artifact, so to speak, of these continuously dividing, self-renewing embryonic stem cells and their physiological correlate in vivo that wants to become an embryo. How do you even identify what is pluripotency? Where is it? That is a fantastic question. Let's think back to enzyme catalysis. Right? Oh, yes. Yes, now we're talking. <laughs> how, does an enzyme, how does an enzyme digest a substrate? It progresses with activation energy through a transition state. That transition state exists on a very short time scale. We can't see that based on, well, I mean, we can't see that. We couldn't see that by any sort of cryo-EM or, or X-ray crystallography. The way we can see it is by slowing down the process, by adding a non-catalyzable inhibitor and doing the crystal structure. And then we can see that transition state frozen in time. And, of course, we can't be sure that that's the right transition state unless we do the genetics, right? So you then find the residues that are important in the transition state, and you mutate them, and you ask if they're important for the enzyme's activity. In the same way, ES cells or epiblast stem cells or neural stem cells, I believe, represent transitions in cell fate specification that we have somehow been able to trap 
by using the equivalent of a non-catalyzable inhibitor, and they were able to trap them in a state where they can still expand. And so, in a sense, what pluripotency is, I mean, it exists, you're right, it exists for a, a very small window of time in developmental terms, I mean, probably less than a cell cycle, and at least naive pluripotency. And yet, we're able to perpetuate this forever in vitro, and that's because we can block the choices it makes. And so one of the things we found recently, for example, is that LIF acts to block epiblast differentiation, for example, at the same time as somehow supporting primitive endoderm. But then when you're growing cells in the ground in naive culture conditions, which use small molecule inhibitors, you usually add a small molecule inhibitor of ERK signaling, PDO3, which blocks primitive endoderm differentiation. So you've trapped a transition state there, which is Probably, transcriptionally, the cells are reconfiguring their network at the cusp of several lineages, and so therefore the cells remain potent. And so you've recently published a paper in Stem Cell Reports on the different developmental stages and their potency. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, I think it, it starts with a paper we published a couple of years ago in PLOS Biology, where we showed that really if you look at embryonic stem cells closely, you can see they're heterogeneous, and they consist of at least two populations. One, which is very epiblast-like, which is the lineage that will give rise to the embryo proper, and those are the cells that are at that moment in time pluripotent. It also has a second population, which is equally self-renewing within the culture system, which can make primitive endoderm if you challenge those cells to differentiate. So ESLs have sort of involved a paracrine culture system in which you have these mixed populations of cells derived from maybe contiguous or slightly temporally resolved developmental stages. And the selection for growth in the culture system pushes them to maintain dynamics. So if you isolate primitive endoderm on its own, you kind of force it to establish a heterogeneous equilibrium because it needs to expand. Now, it's a very, very early state of primitive endoderm differentiation. You just have very low levels of primitive endoderm transcription, no proteins. But if you challenge those cells to, to differentiate at that moment in time, they will make primitive endoderm. So when we started to look more carefully at other ESL culture conditions, whether it's the so-called 2i lift, which is very defined culture condition to grow mouse embryonic stem cells from the blastocyst in the cytokine lift and two small molecule inhibitors, PDO3, as I said before, which blocks primitive endoderm, and a second one called Chiron, which is an inhibitor of GSK3. When you grow cells in that condition, what we find is that, again, that is a heterogeneous culture condition. But in the past, people have thought of it as homogeneous because they've looked at one marker which is a mark called NANOG, which is expressed throughout the epiblast, but is also expressed earlier in development. And what to our lift cells have is a population that's quite committed to early epiblast and a population that is slightly earlier than that, which is still able to make extra embryonic endoderm and ectoderm and trophoblast. So again, you have two populations of cells separated in time which potentially could have some sort of paracrine loop that helps support their expansion. 
and they coexist in the, in the same culture system together. We then looked at a third culture condition, which is characterized by using serum replacement. And what we found is ESL culture in that state contains this early population and a later primitive endoderm population. So you have one to two eye lift cells, you have epiblast and early inner cell mass. And in the KSR condition, you have early inner cell mass and primitive endoderm. So in a way, you have, if you think of it as a triangle from that inner cell mass cell that co-expresses GATA6-NANOG towards primitive endoderm and epiblast, one culture system traps one side of the triangle, the other culture system traps the other. And so what we think more generally about this, this, and I'm summarizing the work that's in several papers here, is that the culture condition, it defines a region of state space that the cells can move into. So state space being the set of genes, the, the sort of molecular territory the cells can explore. It defines the region in which as the cells are expanded from an embryo, they're allowed to expand into. What sort of differentiation, potential differentiation space are they allowed to expand into? The analogy I always use when I give talks about this, they say that, imagine you have a bunch of sheep in a pasture. If you remove the fence, they will leave it random. If you push a sheep dog in and you push them to one side and then open the fence, they'll go out one direction. When we did that original experiment with the epiblast and the endoderm, we were sorting cells based on a reporter. So it's kind of like picking out the sheep that are on one side of the pasture. If we then move the fence, we allow them to expand in a different, slightly different direction. And they will move around the terrain based on two things. They will interact with each other. And they also will move around the terrain based on where the grass is or how much rocks are in the terrain. And so I think you can see that ES cells, and to an extent, possibly all culture systems that involve the expansion of karyotypically normal cells, so non-transformed cells, which are going to engage in a process of some level of self-renewal and differentiation, will exploit these sort of combination of paracrine interactions and dynamics to expand into available state space. And this probably could be true of NS cells or neural stem cells. In the paper, I know you used the, the contribution of chimer, chimeras as kind of a readout for this, and it seemed like your ground state, the 2i plus lift versus the serum, had a greater contribution. So putting it in like practical, really clinically focused terms, which I know is maybe not your major interest, but would you say that defines the ground state as quote-unquote, better or, you know, more potent, like maxi-potency in terms of whether or not they're going to be more translatable, we're going to be able to make more tissues out of them, or you think they're just a different type of potency? No, so what I'd say about the ground state, so again, this goes back to an earlier paper where we defined ground state ES cells as being totipotent. And one of the things we show in this recent paper is Presumably, totipotency results relates to clonal efficiency. So it is the capacity of a cell, when left on its own devices, so put back into an embryo, to undergo self-renewing divisions in the embryo. So only the totipotent population from 2i lift and from KSR, both those conditions where they have this early ICM population, both those they can contribute to a two-cell embryo, which you can't have, normally a cell can't do, at least not efficiently. 
And not only that, but we get an entire mouse from one ES cell when we contribute in that, that two-cell embryo context. And so it sort of suggests that, yes, there is, if your goal is to get maxi-potency cells, then you want to sort the totipotent population or find culture conditions that lead to um, an enrichment of this totipotent population as you do into our lift, but perhaps you know, maximizing it, say, beyond 20% of the culture to getting it up to 50 or something like that, you know, by changing the culture conditions. And, I mean, we are trying to do that sort of thing at the moment. I guess the bottom line question, should we all be maintaining ourselves in a more ground state, do you think? And if, if our focus is not basic understanding and insight, but really, like, we want to get as many of the cell of interest as possible for whatever clinical application, would you say that that's true? I mean, there is a problem with maintaining yourselves de- indefinitely in, into our lift. They do, in some people's hands, seem to go into quiescence. But the cells in KSR lift or in some other conditions that we've developed in the lab recently, they don't seem to have the quiescence issue that you can get into our lift. So just by changing the inhibitors slightly. So what I would say is if we can, if you do, it's still a little bit early. 2i-LIF is great if you need to make a chimera. So you put the cells into 2i-LIF. You can adapt them. And as we show in the paper, potency is – the cells are relatively malleable. So you can change the media conditions, optimize the potency of the cells, inject them, and then go back. And Well, you can't usually go back, but at least you can keep your cells in a more conventional media and then shift them just prior to doing an experiment to optimize either differentiation or chimera generation. However, I would say that I think, hopefully, I will be talking to you next year because we have a paper that's, that we're hopefully about to get accepted, I don't know yet, fingers crossed, in which we describe a, a, yet a slight variation on this condition which I think is going to be much more stable in the long run and is very completely defined. So I think that the answer to your question is yes, for the experiment, I wouldn't do it for all your routine maintenance, but I think in the next year or two, more and more defined conditions will be coming out that will allow you to both to combine that fantastic efficiency with very stable maintenance. It's not that 2LIF is not stable, but you know, where you will never have a problem. Got it. Is this kind of research going to help inform potential directions for n- new culture mediums, like uh, that to allow us to even send cells in, in further directions? I mean, I think that the secret of it all is to, to think about what are the cytokines that are acting on self-hate choice at a particular stage. Now, one thing that we published about 10 years ago was that if we took cells that are moving towards hepatocytes, towards liver. We noticed that as you went from endoderm, which is the germ layer that the liver is derived from, towards a hepatic progenitor, we noticed that if we added the cytokines that induce liver bud growth, that these progenitors started to proliferate. And then if we add some, we manipulate the system a little bit more, potentially block further downstream differentiation. We're not really sure what the cytokines are all doing in the cell culture context, but the bottom line is now we can expand cells that are lineage-restricted to, we tested pancreatic and, and liver differentiation, 
in this case. You know, probably these cells can make other visceral organs, so other endodermal derivatives, but you're not complicated by having ES cells, which can make anything in the culture system, and you don't make mesoderm, and you don't make neural, so you, have, you, you potentially have a cell culture system, which we've trapped a set of cell states that are much later in development, but now is use, much more useful from a pragmatic perspective for making cell types that you can use for drug screening or for regenerative medicine. Do you think there's some kind of just general standard in that labs working in this area should adopt? Is there your research pushing in that direction? A general standard? Yeah, there's so many different, there's like you're talking about things that can determine cell lineage. So we've got growth factors, matrices, all sorts of things. Is there a point that all labs should be starting from so that we know in these experiments that we're all dealing, that questions are actually dealing with the same basic starting point and not some artifact based on where the medium is? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so unfortunately, the reliability of culture systems, I would say, you know, experiments are more reliable when you make the media yourself. Mm. And originally, when we first started doing experiments with medias that we bought, and even if we broke them down, we couldn't publish it anyway, because there was all sorts of issues with publishing what was in the media, right? But I think that recently, we've erred on the side of too much disclosure, and we're trying to put more and more of the com- actual components and very explicit instructions into papers about exactly how you make the media that you grow cells in. Because the reality is that actually, you know, while people think you can buy things from a company and you're going to get perfect cultured media that's stem cell qualified from a particular stem cell company, their batch to batch variation is as bad as with serum sometimes. So, you know, it is an unfortunate truth in science that actually it's very difficult to believe something unless you do it yourself. But at least if you communicate the exactly how one can reconstitute everything, then, you know, you do have a level starting point. Because I do think variations within the culture media have led to quite a lot of irreproducibility across the stem cell spectrum. And and that's a really important point. I mean, we need to be able to reproduce a lot of these studies to be able to move forward. And do you think, like you're talking about open communication, do you think like the open science movement is to, will that help? I think open science is, is fantastic. I also would say that, you know, there is an issue. I don't know how we deal with it because Matrigel is a very good example, right? Everyone uses Matrigel to culture three-dimensional stem cell cultures. There is a huge batch-to-batch variation in Matrigel, and there is no way you're going to convince the company to publish what's in it. Mm-hmm. It puts science in a really difficult position because actually, I mean, I guess I have quite left leanings anyway, but you know, here you have a company that's there to make money on the scientific process, but their product, because they need to keep a, a cornerstone on their market, they can't release what's in their product. Yeah, it's like Coke's secret recipe. Exactly. <laughs> but if you have Coke's secret recipe in a media that people are using to grow stem cells and Coke changes that recipe periodically, then how are you going to get reproducibility? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about uh, Matrigel, too, is it's actually derived from a, a, like a mouse sarcoma that's riding on a mouse. So yeah. it's something that is inherently variable in itself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting about so many things 
in stem cell space. And the biology is a lot of the reagents we use are these live reagents that are talking to our cells and convincing them to go one way or another. So, and not to mention the operator variability, which you alluded to. So let's say we standardize the reagents. We get some inhibitors in there, things that can be chemically defined and standardized across the world. We're still going to have to deal with everybody's recipe and everybody's hands. So is that going to be an insurmountable obstacle, do you think, in translating these things? I know this is a, a silly question to ask a scientist. It's not your job to make it happen. It's just a, to prove the theory. But especially over there where you are, what's the attitude, do you think, in towards transitioning from this kind of pharma or even biologics paradigm in the drug you know, treatment space, industrial science, to a biological live product? Is it ever going to happen? So firstly, I think that it is true that there is a reproducible issue with pharma. You know, pharma is an opinion of the scientific literature. And there is, it is true that some things are published that probably aren't as robust as others. And, that, you know, you could say that's a problem with the review process rather than, than the individuals themselves. I mean, it's what people get away with publishing. And actually, a lot of the journals are becoming more and more aware of this issue. And... So, you know, like, for example, I am an editor for Plus Biology, and I know that we have a, there was an issue of Plus Biology a few months ago that really focused on reproducibility issues in a lot of, whole issue of meta-studies. So the journals are, and whenever you submit to a journal now, there's a lot more hoops you have to go through with your data. But I, I think that we have to step back from this a bit, because we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have to accept that science, as it has progressed, has produced some remarkable translation, right? So I think it's really unfair to say that just because we have variability doesn't mean nothing is going to be robust enough to translate. It's just that you do have to do the experiments yourself, and some things you will be able to reproduce, and some things you will convince yourself are right, and... I mean, we, there's a protocol that we're doing now that has been published in a high-impact journal. And, you know, I know that the original lab that published it were quite concerned because nobody was able to reproduce it. So I got in touch with them. I had a postdoc. He spent a couple of months trying to really get it up and running here. Now it runs beautifully. And it is completely, it is really robust, but it did need a lot of attention to detail. So do we not want that? protocol published because it fails on some reproducibility issues because it does require a lot of specialized skills to get it to work. I think we want it out there. And I think we want people to then engage with that protocol and see, is it robust enough for translation or not? But there will be things that are robust enough for translation. And I think there will be things that are going to be remarkably successful. You know, it's biology, as you say. Yeah, I know that in the last few couple of years, there's been an opening of uh, biological preprint servers. Like, so in physics, there's the archive where preprints go out and people get a chance to comment on the data and the, the methodology before it goes into publication so that researchers can kind of go take it back to the lab if they need to. And then also in physics, there's this standard of Six Sigma significance, which is a you know highly, highly accurate level of significance. Um, And in biology, with cell culture, you have the possibility of maybe doing a higher throughput experiment. Maybe, you know, physics, lots of particles enables you to go for that six sigma. 
in cell biology, when you're dealing with high, lots of numbers of cells, we have an ability to go for very high standards of significance. Should we be pushing for that? Well, I think it depends because I think six sigma factors is a huge <laughs> amount of data. It's a lot of data, but I mean, when you've got that much data, it really gets rid of those, you know, the false positives, false negatives, you know. They're also expensive experiments, right? Yeah. So, and there is a question here about whether you can resolve things in a way that where you can produce statistically robust data for a reasonable cost. Yeah. Because if you want six sigmas, you're going to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on cytokines, right? So the question is, how much do you need? Biology is not chemistry or physics. And we do require cells to behave for us. And there are many, many variables that impact on the cell's behavior. And to get back to our recent paper, I mean, one of the things about highlights is not all ES cells are the same right, that you grow them in one condition, and actually you have biologically different cell types than in another condition, and we've just classed these all as the same thing. So biology requires a lot more attention to detail like that. And at the same time, you cannot expect that you're going to get the robust level of reproducibility that you get in physics, but it has to be better than it is now. Yeah. And it's really down to the journals to make sure that what people publish is reproducible. The problem probably comes at the highest impact journals because, you know, it used to be said when I've been in funding board meetings, that, you know, for example, the journal development, at least in the UK and in Europe, on someone's CV in terms of grant recognition can count almost as high as a high impact paper like a nature paper. Now, obviously people are Bias by are influenced by impact factors and things like that, and it doesn't count the same. I would be foolish to say it does. But one of the things that people on those panels always say about development papers is the level of review that those papers go through can sometimes be much more significant than what a nature paper goes through. Because in a development paper, you're reviewed by three people who know your work and know the field really well, mm -hmm. and they look at your data really closely, and they ask you to do a lot. With nature depends on who the, the editor decided to send it to, and it's probably in diverse fields because they're looking for a general readership, and there's a lot of politics in those bigger journals. And as a result of those politics, you probably are getting a lot less reproducible data published. Now, I don't want to be misconstrued as saying that a particular journal is particularly bad at reproducibility issues. And I know some of the nature journals are making big efforts to deal with this reproducibility issue as well. But the point is that a journal that has political considerations that wants a paper published because it will create attention. If that paper is controversial, if it can't be reproduced, it creates a lot of attention, right? Yeah. A good science journal that is really focused in the field is more interested in just publishing what's right. And I think the level of reproducibility at those journals, if one was to do this sort of study and try to look at the metadata on studies that were reproducible and compare a journal like development to a journal like any one of the big, you know? Yeah. I really am curious to see how that would come out. And 
just by virtue to just by, and it's not saying that anyone is doing anything wrong in this process. It's just the process is different at those journals. Yeah, well, what is it? Eight out of ten, I think, when they took out those the big cancer study, they took eight out of the ten, a, a raft of uh, pharma-related cancer therapeutic-type studies, and eight out of ten of them weren't reproducible. I think it was somewhere around the numbers. So, yeah, clearly what you're saying, the bigger the journal, the bigger the impact, the bigger the, the you know, the market, it seems like maybe the less, not stringent, but reliable? I don't know. It seems like there's some open <laughs> questions for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a question of, you know, there's time pressure at those journals. Yeah. You know, they don't, they, none of the, a lot of those journals do not commit. You know, for example, EMBO has this fantastic anti-scoop policy where they say that once your paper is in revision, right. we will not let you get scooped. So we can make you do all the experiments you need to do so we can be convinced this is really robust. And if someone should happen to publish in the meantime, then it won't prevent your paper from being published. But on its face, you know, that editorial postscript on the and the big journals, it says, we willing to reconsider your article as long as there is no other competing information that's published in the meanwhile, which is pretty much saying, get to it, my friend. You want to get your paper? Get it out there. You better exactly. rush. So, you know, you can't imagine that this could potentially lead to not laxness, but it, you know, of course, that's where you can have issues of reproducibility or mistakes. You know, when you rush when you rush. Yeah. You mentioned that you have a paper that's going to be coming out uh, next year. What is the direction of your research? Where are you going currently? Where are you looking? I would say there are three things that we're quite interested in now. The first is that as we take apart um, the transcription factor network that's expressed in these cell cultures, broadly speaking, pluripotent cultures, but this includes uh, early ICM, what are their lineage affiliations in vivo? What are these factors actually doing during development? And what can I tell us about how they stabilize these cell culture states? And one thing that we're quite interested in is this notion, as I said, that you can get apparently antagonistic transcription factors seeming to either cooperate or cross-repress each other to stabilize stem cell or progenitor cell identity. So perhaps that is a general principle that underlies maintaining a cell and self-renewal. And so that, that's another issue that I have several people in the lab looking at in different, in different contexts. And then one of the other directions that we've gone in, and as I said, um, and this relates to that other, other paper I mentioned, is not only what are the transcription factors doing, but we use these cytokines to grow cells. And we use these small molecule inhibitors. And what we've been interested in is trying to piece apart which lineages these regulate. And as I said, going back, again, trying to understand what we see in stem cells as a transition state for development, but also using what we can find from the natural role of these factors in development to understand stem cells. You know, so I think that that's another direction that we're going in. And I guess I just finished that by adding, oh, so we have one other side of our, our interest that's very process-oriented, that's very interested in how transcription is regulated. You know, we've really looked at how specific cytokines, in this case, FGF-ERK signaling, how it impacts on the choice cells make. And there we're getting down to how is ERK signaling communicating with the polymerase and what is it doing to the polymerase. And in a certain sense, because we've developed systems and where we can turn the signal on and off, we can use this as a way to actually characterize a transcriptional switch 
you know, and to actually look at the molecular biology, the transcriptional switch, in addition to understand the broader stem cell questions. This is all very fascinating. And thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate having this conversation with you. Well, thank you for your interest and your time. All right. What a great interview. Joshua Brickman, ladies and gentlemen, a very good man, a Dane who I, I hate to say, but off radio, he admitted to me that he flunked his Danish test, the poor guy. So he's speaking in only English, but doesn't make him any less brilliant. And uh, his students and postdocs clearly still respect him in the morning. Absolutely. With very good reason. <laughs> But at this show, at this point in the show, we should close it out, right? Time to end with our SCP rant. This is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and probably bothers you too. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Today, we're going to rant about meaningless and or annoying, frustrating, just ugh, phrases that don't add anything to the conversation, but certainly you know, make me angry and make me want to rant. I've got a great example here, which, you know, everybody's got their own, but there's one that's pretty well established as meaningless, kind of like the irregardless conversation that everyone has. But this one is at the end of the day. Don't you hate it when people say at the end of the day, because they say it kind of like all the time and for anything. And it doesn't even make any sense sometimes. At the end of the day, I go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, sir, so-and-so, you know, that's a really good point. But uh, at the end of the day, I fall asleep. That's what every one of those statements should be, because what they're actually saying. But at the end of the day, they might as well be saying, what I think, and contrary to what you think, is this. Not at the end of the day. There's no day. There's no day, Kiki. Do you have any statements like that that you actually, that, that really make you angry? Yeah, I mean, people use basically all the time. So basically, uh, you know, uh, it's like, uh, but it, that's just something. It's a crutch. You just you're using it to inform people that you're going to be breaking it down a little bit or it, I don't know. It says, pause while I think. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that I mean, we all need a little pause while you think. So that's fine. But say, basically, say, it's, um, it's, say, um, say, um, whatever happened to, um, <laughs> yeah. and then there's. Sorry, but, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, but, and then you go on and say, it's like, you know, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> I'm really, really not sorry. Why am I apologizing? A whole other field. Those are the, the, the verbal crutches of argument. I have one with my wife that she hates, and I, I got to say I hate myself for it as well, but we'll be in a heated argument, and I just can't wait to make my point that's going to shatter her point, even though she's not even listening to me. <laughs> And I always say, well, babe, I hate to say it, fill in the blank. And it's so annoying because I don't hate to say it. I'm, I'm squealing. You're I so looking I mean, forward I'm to so it. I'm so psyched to say it. And I think I'm so smart. So there's no hate there. The only hate I have in that moment is for my wife. <laughs> in that, that moment where you just want to in crush her. Oh, <laughs> like, man. here, I have something important to say. I hate to say it, but I want to say something that's going to destroy you. I hate oh. saying it. Yeah, I think it's a bunch of BS. We got we to gotta evolve a little bit. You know, uh, English language has so many words. We got to use them right. We got to use them right. Uh, words matter, right? Yeah, of course they matter. Ba matter. Basically, I'm going to break it down to you, Kiki. Basically, <laughs> it's basically. an issue. <laughs> I hate to say it, 
but basically it's an issue. And at the end of the day, we need to do something about it. Yeah. And sorry, but I think it's uh, time for us to end the show. Oh, it's the end of the day. <laughs> is the it end. the end of the show? It is the end of the show. It is. Well, at the end of the show, I go to sleep. <laughs> Man, I need a nap. It's been a busy weekend. All right, everyone. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Daylin, this concludes episode 75 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Three quarters of the way to 100. Let's keep it going. Great information. Another great interview. Week, I guess, bi-weekly, bi-bi-weekly. Be sure to tune in, everyone, for our next episode. We will bring even more incredible stuff. Basically. Basically, <laughs> we'll the bring best more. show on radio. That's right. I'm looking forward to the next time. Me too, Kiki. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>